I was just looking at the train tracks and I noticed, you know what? Pretty much you have to have the same tracks everywhere or things aren't going to work real well. You know what I'm thinking about? Like the distance between the tracks better match or at some point we got a problem. You know what I'm saying? So I looked things up. Did you know this? The train tracks are exactly four feet, eight and one half inches apart. Four feet, eight and one half inches. That's a weird number, isn't it? Like who picked that? So four feet, eight and one half inches. It turns out it's because when we decided we were going to put the trains here in the United States, the British came over and they came over with their gauges and their tools and whatever. And they designed the trains like they had them. And they were four feet, eight and one half inches apart. Why? Why were they four feet, eight and one half inches apart? Well, actually, they were four feet, eight and one half inches apart because they actually built using the wagon as their example. So their gauges that they had for the wagons and the wagon wheel is exactly how they made the trains originally. It was basically wagons with power. You know what I mean? So that's where the English came from. So they had these wagons that they used to model their trains that they brought to the United States to model for our trains, right? Why did they make their their wagon wheels four feet, eight and one half inches apart? Well, actually, they did that. Do you see how this just keeps going on? They actually did that because of the ruts that were in the roads, And they wanted to make sure that they fit in the ruts. When they made them bigger, because they did, and smaller, one wheel would fall into the rut, and the other wheel would stay out, and it would snap the axle. So they matched the ruts that were in the road. Where'd the ruts come from? Well, the ruts actually came from the Roman chariots. Can you believe this? The ruts actually came from the Roman chariots, from the Roman imperial army of hundreds and hundreds of years of riding up and down these European roads. So... Why are our train tracks in the United States four feet, eight and one half inches apart? Because of the Roman Empire. Is that bizarre? I'm telling you, traditions and following through and not changing on things, it's a part of our way of living. And it's something that we need to be really careful of. Sometimes it can have great pragmatic purpose, and other times it just needs to change. Okay? We've been looking at the master's heart. The heart of the master. Who is this Jesus Christ? And as we pour into who he is and as we let him pour into us, we found him to be loving and gentle, healing, teaching and training. Today, we're going to find him as the admonisher. The one who steps up alongside when things need to change and says, we're done with that. It's time to change. Sometimes he brings some heat. That's who we're going to meet today. So how does Jesus admonish us? How does he admonish us and how should we respond to him? That's the question that we're answering today as we look at Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. How does Jesus admonish and how should I respond to him? The ushers are going to be coming forward. They've got Bibles in their hands. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. We'd love to get one to you, okay? We're going to be walking through this verse by verse. So just raise your hand and they'll get one to you. The admonisher's heart. Let me just start by reading the first section here, the first five verses. Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? That's the first section. 
What's Christ doing here? Let's just look at this real closely. First point, Jesus admonishes with actions, with his actions, okay? Jesus admonishes just by the way he lives. As we look at this, watch him and those who follow him. Watch how their actions admonish those around. Let's start in verse 1. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes from Jerusalem. When the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered with him. Okay, from Jerusalem. So we have to gather this in. These guys who hang out in Jerusalem, that's their place of living. They make their daily adventures moving around in Jerusalem. Decided to pack up shop and move out over into the Galilee area to where Jesus is for this day. This is kind of like a road trip. That's what they're doing. We're going to check him out. Most likely this is not, hey, let's go enjoy the sunny day. Let's see what that Jesus guy has to teach. This is probably a, let's go bust him. We've got some big problems going on. We've got some followings happening with him. Let's check into that and see what we can find that might be wrong. They're basically going in with the critical eye. So when we see that the Pharisees and scribes have come from Jerusalem, we should all go, whoa, the heavy's coming in, okay? So who are these Pharisees and scribes? Well, a Pharisee, basically it means separated one. There were only several thousand Pharisees. That was kind of an amazing little moment when I read that, when I first found that out, because you see them all through the scripture. They had a high impact in this time of Christ, but there's only several thousand of them. Their main goal is interpreting the law, trying to be able to protect the law and help others to follow through with it. So that's the Pharisees' job. They feel like the law, it's theirs. They feel like helping people to follow the law, theirs. So they're coming in kind of like the watchdogs of the community, okay? We get in the picture. So they're walking in and they're ready to go, not like that, like this. Not like that, like this. That's every day for them, all right? Can you imagine living around those guys? That's what, that was their job, all right? The scribes. These are the guys who are the learned men. Their job was to know the law. Their job was to know the scriptures. Their job was to make it clear to others. Actually, a big part of their job was also helping people to learn to read, to be able to follow through the scriptures themselves. So their job was to love the law, to love the word, and to be able to help others to love it as well. Some of the scribes were actually Pharisees. So there's kind of an overlap in there, okay? So the scribes and the Pharisees, these two sets of guys, they have now hooked together and said, Enough is enough. Let's go figure out what's going on with this Jesus guy. And they're out there now checking up on him. Here's what we have happen. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. In other words, now they're eyewitnesses. You see, we've heard the rumors, but we're out here to prove that these guys really have no clue what's going on. I saw with my own eyes. That's kind of what they're getting ready to say. All right? They saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Okay, now Mark, the writer of this book, he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles, to Greeks. That's his goal, is helping the Gentiles to come along in what's happening. So the nice thing is, we're actually getting a little explanation as it goes along. He says, you know, that is unwashed. So he makes this big statement, their hands were undefiled, right? What does that mean? Well, it means that, you know, they didn't wash that day. That's what it meant. And that was a grievous moment because of the traditions that they had walked through. A grievous moment. They had not washed before dinner. Are you hearing it? So most of the kids are like, hey mom, listen to this, you know. It's not that big a deal. So they had not washed their hands before dinner. 
Now, Mark actually explores a little more here. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. Mark's actually giving us a little more explanation. You guys need to understand, this is a regular occurrence. This is asked of them all the time. Now, who's asking? Well, actually, it's the traditions of the elders that they're doing this for. It's not law. It's tradition. Are you hearing it? Very important. It's not God-given, God-mandated law. There was a law. And to protect the law, they created a tradition that would surround it and help them to remain undefiled. Okay? I was amazed when I read this this week. I didn't even know this. They had a phrase. They said, traditions were the fence line around the law. We will adhere to the tradition And it will guarantee that we will never violate the law. But what did they just do then? They put the traditions first, right? You see, they're creating traditions out of a respect for the law originally. But then they put so much due diligence into the tradition that they now believe that's the law. So start following it. They flipped it. And everything you're doing is now following the traditions in order to protect the sanctity of the law. Okay? So that's what we have going on. They've walked in, they've said, I just saw him eat, I saw him pick that piece of food up and he did not go rinse first. The rinse and repeat effect was not in there. You were defiled and that's a problem. And now that it's a problem, let me tell you something, we've got something to say about it. So Mark actually goes on a little bit further here in verse four. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. So in other words, it's not just because you've gotten dirty, it's because of a dirty place you may have been in and around. And just to clear yourself, you wash. Furthermore, not only do they do that when they come from there, he says verse uh, in the middle of verse 4 there, there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Can you imagine? Like basically everything, every day, all the time, they're going through the washing, not because of a practicality of trying to keep things clean, but because all of a sudden, they've gotten so adamant about trying to protect this law of defilement that they've created a slew of traditions around it, hoping to have created a fence line that will respect God. And they're really thinking that that was their original purpose. And yet what's happened is now it's follow me. I know what's best. Yeah, I've got 42 traditions to cover that one law, but you better follow me. Okay? That, by the way, is actually what they called the yoke. You know, so when Christ said, my yoke is easy, you know, that was actually the term they used of the rabbi's descriptions. What traditions did these teachers hook together into a yoke, into a following requirement? Okay? So that's what we have going on. This big, heavy thing going on of Pharisees and scribes saying, I'm telling you, I've got a yoke. My tradition list is big, and you, my friend, have violated it. You and all of your followers. So... They decide they've now got some courage. We've got some eyewitness element. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes approach him and say, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? Do you hear it? Why do your disciples? In other words, we are ascribing their failure to you, my friend. Let me ask you a question. Why have you allowed this violation, this grievous error of our traditions? Do you hear the thing going on? 
not of God's law, of our traditions. Why are you making them followers of you instead of followers of us? What is it you're trying to get accomplished here exactly? What's your main point? Now, I'll give them this. Jesus admonishes with actions. They saw the actions appropriately. What they should have done was question themselves. What they did was question him. Do you see the mistake? You have veered off. You aren't following tradition and trend. I'm going to question you very firmly. Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They eat with defiled hands. You know, all too often, we can end up in a situation where we think we're doing exactly what God would probably want us to do. We can't find it in the Scripture, but we've created this extra-biblical set of rules that we follow. And in those extra-biblical set of rules, we find ourselves feeling very secure. Do you have any of them? Think your way through this for a second. What is it that you approach Jesus Christ with? How do you get a relationship with him? How do you work daily with him? Are you looking at the life of Jesus Christ and being trained by what he does and doesn't do? Or do you kind of have your own list, your own rules, you know? I mean, for some of us, we grew up with rules like don't ever wear jeans to church on Sunday, right? I mean, seriously, come on, didn't we all? Many of us are going, yeah, I remember that. I mean, I grew up in a church where if you didn't wear a skirt as a woman on Sunday, sin. Really? Where's that? Right? We have to be very careful that we don't start creating traditions that supersede law. That we don't start creating a my world kind of following of Jesus Christ rather than a his world. What do you want done, Lord? And let me tell you, he's almost always about the heart. He's almost always about what's on the inside. You know, I just wrote down a few things here. Some actions in Jesus Christ's life that we could watch. Watch his prayer life. Are you motivated by his prayer life? Are you admonished by his prayer life? Seeing the time that he spends, when he spends it, how he spends it, his alone time. How much of your time do you have just immersed with other people and family and you run throughout your days and weeks and months until you're totally fried and you can't figure out why you always have that temper you've got? You can't figure out why you've always got that frustration. His times of rest. His times of focus on others during total interrupts. Not what he was planning unnecessarily headed towards, but somebody is in need and he stops and he takes care of. What about his knowledge of the scripture? How much he'd spent time knowing, understanding, and learning to apply. How about his time just loving God the Father? Is our relationship with the Lord a checklist? of do's and don'ts, of traditions, of structured things that I do each day because then I feel like I'm at least following and respecting the law? Or do I have a warm, dynamic, passionate relationship with him? Do I know him deeply and intimately and personally? Is he motivating me when I think of him, when I pray with him, when I spend time just quietly letting him pour into me and over me? When I look at his word and I'm challenged by what it says 
Am I getting to know him and love him? Am I ready to go out and share to others about what he is with me and to me and for me? Or are my pots clean? My hands are clean. And so I must be good. Do you hear the difference? We got to be very careful that we don't become legalistic. Because let me tell you, our God is all about holiness. He is a great and mighty God. And he is all over holiness. But what he is not all over is just changing the exterior. Exactly. (laughs) Are you challenging God or are you letting him challenge you? Be admonished by his actions. Point number two, Jesus admonishes with the scriptures. Jesus admonishes with the scriptures. Let's just start reading here in verse six. And he, Jesus, said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Wow. (laughs) Jesus is speaking to the authorities within this community. And they have approached him and said, you, my friend, are violating the traditions. And what they expected in full, I mean, they were busted wide open. You were caught, man, red-handed. What he should have responded with was, I am wrong. And my people have not followed the right ways, the traditions of the elders, the wisdom that has respected God's law. I need to apologize and I need to humbly confess. And that's what they expected. What they got was, Well, let me tell you what Isaiah has to say about you. I'm sure the first thing they thought was, us? Isaiah wrote about us? I think you're mistaken, right? And then he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? What's a hypocrite? Is Jesus just a name caller here? Is he like trying to kick dust on their feet? Is that what he's doing? He's just trying to be kind of, hey, I'll try to up the ante. I'm going to get you a little bit stirred up. Is he just name-calling or is he for real? Are they really hypocrites? Right? A hypocrite is somebody who says one thing but does the exact opposite. The exterior doesn't match the interior. Who you say you are and what you say you're trying to do, that is not who you are. That is not who you are. Christ is very real here. This is not a name-calling moment. This is a serious admonishing moment. As the God of the universe is calling upon them to look deep inside and get right with the Lord. Now he goes to a passage here. He quotes Isaiah 29, 13, okay? This is Isaiah 29, 13. And when he quotes this, remember in the Old Testament, we talked about this back at uh, Christmas time, for those of you who are with us. In the Old Testament, they write in a poetry fashion. They take two pieces and they abut them together. They call it parallelism, okay? So when we look at this, we're going to look at two phrases abutted together and then two more phrases, It's parallelisms, okay? What kind? Well, the first ones are opposing. They call it antithetic parallelism. So you've got this opposing, this opposites. And then in the next one, it's state and extend further. They call that synthetic parallelism. So he's using poetry, Isaiah is, as he's recording what kind of hypocrisy are we talking about? Look what he says. He says, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Lip service, not heart service. You seeing it? 
So a parallelism. You want to know what kind of hypocrite? You're putting it on your mouth, but you're not putting it in your heart. You're saying it, but you're not doing it. You're structuring things and teaching things, but inside we got a mess. Your hands are clean, but your heart is filthy. We've got an issue going on. You, my friend, don't understand what it means to come before the Lord. We've got a problem. Your lips, yeah, you're saying the right thing. Your heart, mm -mm, not so much. As a matter of fact, let me clarify that. In vain do they worship me, second part, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You hear it? In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. You say you're worshiping me. Well, what does the word worship mean? It means to ascribe value or worth to. It is worthship. That's where the word originally came from, right? It means you have worth, God Almighty. You are worth it. You're so worth it that I'm going to do my own thing. That's what they were saying, right? By their actions, they're like, you are unbelievably worth it. So I'm following me. Can you hear the hypocrisy in it? And he says, what you're doing is you're following the teachings of man and making them the commandments. Will you let go of the teachings of man and grab on to the very commandments of God? The yoke is easy. The burden is light. The yoke of man, that's heavy. But the yoke of Jesus Christ, it's easy. And the burden is light. All too often we throw all the weight on ourselves on how we're going to live it. He says here, as he summarizes this, honors me with their lips, heart is far from me. Worship is vain. Teaching of commandments is just the men's. This is where we need to hear it. Jesus is admonishing with all he's got, and he's saying this. Seriously, hear me on this. You need to lean on the God of the universe, the one who is created, the one who is sustaining, the one who is providing, the one who will be king of kings and lord of lords. You need to see him and know him and want him to be with him with all you have. May his commandments be what's essential in your life. Do not make your own little lists. Go after him with all you've got. Amen? That's what we need to be after. Our God, his way, with all we have, no vain worship, him lifted up, to God be the glory. Amen? Now that's what it's about. Walking in a way where at the end, we don't have Jesus Christ looking at us and saying, well did Isaiah say of you, hypocrite. Whoa, can you imagine that heat? Can you imagine that heat? You know, Jesus decided to use the scriptures here, right? The law and the prophets are what they respected. So the first thing he did is dive into the prophets and let them know, uh, there's some application to you here, boys. Think about what you're doing and what you're not doing and get it straight. Now, I can just imagine that moment as those who thought they were in charge are now challenged by the one who they thought was absolutely in the wrong. Is that a moment that's easy for them to accept? Where they go, oh, good point. Let's go home and change. Is that what happened? No way, right? We see these guys, hardened heart, set up, power struggle is in place. Jesus is challenging the heart and their problem is they don't see him for who he is. Our advantage is we are looking through the scriptures at the one who spoke them into existence. This whole world, including them, into existence through Jesus Christ. Creating, sustaining, providing, 
He will come again to reign as king. May we see him as who he is. May we respond to him as who he is. Our Lord, our Savior, our King forever. And may we respond by dropping where we're at and going the other direction. Let's not be the Pharisees. Let's not be that. Let's not be the hypocrite who our lips say the right things, but our heart is far from them. You know, as we get challenged by the scriptures today, what's that look like? How does God do that? I will tell you this. The last several weeks have been an interesting little walk for me. I've had uh, a couple of little moments where um, I've had some circumstances that have arisen. People are saying some things that are kind of harsh or whatever. They're unwarranted. They're things that weren't true. There were misunderstandings that they didn't get. And, and as they said things, then they realized what was true. Then there was apology. But let me tell you, sitting in the moment where somebody thinks you're an idiot when you've done exactly what you need to do, it's not a fun walk. And so I had a really good complaint session time. It was a good one too. You know, the little wine moment you got for a good day and a half where it's just not right. And, not... and then I got into doing my devotions and I'm in 1 Peter 3. And God's talking about suffering. And suffering when you do good. And the difference between that and suffering when you do bad. And expect to be suffering when you do good. And now you're following in the steps of Christ. Right? And by the end of it, I'm going... Okay, fine. I get it. No more complaints. So I write down that I shouldn't be complaining. I need to be working through things better. May I lean on you, Lord? That was my prayer. Then I go to Harvest University this week. We took a bunch of the staff and, and uh, others with us, a few elders and stuff. We were up at Harvest University. First message James has is on trials. You need to learn to remain under. Complaining is not remaining under. Yeah, I got that point yesterday. Okay, good. <laughs> right? Let me tell you something. Christ teaches through the scriptures. Amen. Are we actively in the word? Because if you're not, you're missing the moment. Are you actively learning from him? What's he challenging you with? I just told 700 people who's challenging me with. How about you? What's he challenging you with? Are you learning anything? Are you going after it? Day by day, spend some time in the word, not because you can checklist it and go, I've made my little fence line and now I have some traditional undefilement moment of No, it's because you're learning who he is and you want him to teach you what might need to change. And he uses the scripture to do it and he uses it powerfully. Read for change. Read for growth. What's he challenging you with? If your answer is pretty much nothing, then can I ask you to please get in the word more? Because he's got something for you. We all do. We all have a sticking point. We all have a growing point. I've got mine. What's yours? Let's go after this word with all we've got. God changing us from the inside out as we go through the word. You'll be amazed how it works out. You just start, I started first Peter, I don't know, a couple weeks ago. I hit first Peter three and I'm, I'm nailing it down. And it turns out it's right before I'm hearing a James one passage. And it's right before I've gone through some tough struggles and right after some tough struggles. right? God let, he lines it up. Just get moving. Spend some time in the word. Watch him confront And adjust your heart as you see the truth of who you are and the truth of who he is and what you need to let go of and where you need to go. He speaks to us in the scriptures. You having your daily time in the word? You having a regular diet time where you're hearing from him? If the answer is no, then let's make today the day where we start. There's some easy things to do. 
I mean, you can pick a book of the Bible. The Gospel of John's a great place to start if you haven't been in the Word for a while, just to hear of who he is. Go through it saying, how can I believe more in you? Who are you? Get fired up on who Jesus Christ is. You know, 1 Peter's a great one if you want to be challenged on how to handle trials. I can tell you that. (laughs) I think there's some good opportunities to get into the Word and be changing daily. It's His promise. Go after Him with all you've got. If you are going after Him, what's He challenging you with? You ready to change? You ready to give it up? He's there. He wants to come alongside. But He's going to bring the heat. The best thing I can say, I wrote a quote down here. Some people will change when they see the light. Others will only change when they feel the heat. And others may not change at all. Which one are you? Are you the one that's changing because you see the light and you get it and so you're stepping in line with him? Or is God going to have to crank up the heat on you in order to get your attention and then you're going to turn? Or are you the one who says, I refuse to change no matter what. It's going to be my way. Please don't be that person. See who he is and come to him with all you've got. Let his word teach you. Let his actions teach you. Come to know the Savior personally, deeply, intimately, and start making some changes. By the end of 2009, I'm going to be different. Praise be to God, because I'm going through his word. Amen? That's what it's all about. So first, Jesus challenges and admonishes us with his actions. Second, he admonishes us with his word, with the scriptures, Lastly, you know what? Jesus admonishes us with very specific examples, with specific examples. He really doesn't come up and give some big, vague generality. Sometimes I might have general application challenges for you guys. Most of the time it's, uh, what are you doing? Where are you at with this? Why are you or how are you? Think it through. You know why? It's because I don't know every little intimate detail of your life. And I can give you some really specific example. And really all I'm doing is telling you how I'm fixing my life, right? You need to be able to help diagnose some of what's going on in your life. But Jesus, he knows you deeply and personally and intimately. And very specific things are going to come up as you spend time in his word, time listening to other preachers, time just praying through things. You're going to be amazed at how specific things get in challenge. Let's take a look here. How specific did he get with them? Verse 9. He said to them, heat is not off yet. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is now korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. A lot of heat coming here. Let me ask you a question. When he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment, is this a compliment? You have a fine way of doing that. What a wonderful rejection method you have. Is that what he's saying? This is actually a bit of sarcasm that he's bringing, right? He's saying, listen to me. You have a fine way of doing that. You think you're so good. Let me tell you something. I got issue with your rejection thing going on here. Let's talk about the detail of it, okay? Let's talk about it. First, he says, You reject the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So you are more important than God. That's what he's saying. Is that really your position? Because that's what you're doing. Now he says, we've covered the prophets. 
and we think highly of the law and the prophets, it's time to move to the law. So he says in verse uh, 10 here, for Moses said, oh, you can just see these guys, right? These are the Pharisees. They know all about it, right? They know all. For Moses said, oh, here we go. Mm. You can just see him setting in. I can quote to you what you're about ready to tell me. I know what Moses says. You tell me what he said. I can fix this problem. And Jesus says, Moses said, honor your father and mother. Okay, no, duh. All right, that's kind of the answer the Pharisees are. I got to believe this is one of these. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you think you're trying to teach us with that? I know where we're at. I get it. I know the law. Honor your father and mother. Yeah, I get it. All right, that comes right out of Exodus 20, verse 12. And then he jumps ahead to Exodus 21, 17. He says, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Mm. Okay, for those of us in today's modern society, we go, what? <laughs> what did that just say? It, it actually is very biblical in the way that Israel was working with God. He basically said, the rule of order in this, in this country, in this nation, is going to be that I'm working with the parents and the parents are working with the children and the children are listening to the parents. You honor or else, okay? There was a very strong um, law-based treatment all the way down to the children. Deuteronomy 28, 18 through 21, it actually says, if your children are such a disgrace, they continue to repeatedly disobey, and it kind of has this inkling of, of adult child there with some of the things that they're doing wrong, then take them before the elders at the gate and they will stone them. God wasn't joking around when he said, they will surely die. And I want you to be a part of it, is what he's saying. This is a very scary moment, okay? He's basically saying to them, look, how serious is honoring your father and mother in the law? How serious is it, guys? It's so serious, it's about life and death, isn't it? Isn't it? And of course, you can imagine this moment where they're like, yeah, we know that. Fine, then I have a question for you. He basically says, whatever you would have, oh, I'm sorry, verse 11, he says, but you say. Can you imagine that moment where he's saying, Moses says, but you say. You're like, oh, what did we say? You know, it's one of those moments. I hope we're online here. What did we say? What's he going to quote of us? But you say, and then he goes into this statement about Corban. He says, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is now Corban, in other words, a gift given to God. That's what it really means. God-given gift, okay? So basically they're saying, I have all this stuff and I was going to care for you and the way I honor you is to take care of you and I'll take care of you with physical stuff. Not anymore though. I decided to give it to God. You lose, okay? So they created a tradition early on. This is how it went, right? Originally it's honor your father and mother. And then there's also this other thing, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And they said, you know what? A good way of loving God is giving him everything you can. And so if we ever say korban to something, then, then we're, we're claiming that goes to God and it will absolutely go to God. We will be real to our word. Tradition made, right? Corban. Whatever we say, it's, it's, it's real. I'm giving this to God. Then you will. And then once they get into that position, then somebody one day went, what am I? Okay. What I was going to give them to my parents. Corban. What do we do with that now? And now they're sitting there going, well, it's a promise to give it to God. God, mom, mom's important but God. So we'll let God win. So it goes to God. And what did they just do? The tradition just got honored over the original law, commandment of God. They didn't weigh the two together. And when they made their tradition, their tradition became more important. And so now all of a sudden, you can break the law. 
You just have to follow the tradition to break the law. That's a problem, right? How many times do we end up in our own little weird spider webs of traditions where we're doing little things that we think were, where they were meant for good, but then we twist them into something else, and now all of a sudden they've got us off away from God? We have to be so careful. The challenge here is simply this. He says, you no longer permit anything to go to the father and mother. You make void the word of God by your tradition. You make void the word of God by your traditions. How often do we do that? How often are we so set in our ways that God is just not as important to us? We so don't want to change that we just don't see what it is that needs to change in front of us. You know, in 1783, there was this giant 33-foot bag, and it was tethered and tied on, by ropes, and underneath it was this little smoldering fire, and the smoke and heat was rising up into it, and this bag filled up with hot air, and it got real taut. And then they cut the ropes, and the bag floated up into the air. And the first hot air balloon flight was taking place, and it floated up into the air about 6,000 feet, and it floated several miles away. And as it came down and landed, peasants grabbed their pitchforks and killed it, saying an evil one had come from the sky. All right? How often are we caught in a spot where we're not seeing the new thing, the fresh thing that God's doing in our life, and we're attacking it with all we have rather than releasing him to make the change he needs to make in us? Are you the peasant with the pitchfork? Or are you the servant? Before him saying, Lord, what are you changing in me? What do I need to hear? What needs to be different? What fresh thing are you going after in my life? May I give you all that I've got? Is it in your world of prayer? Or how you're managing problems? What is it you need to be going after? To hear the Lord speaking to you. Hear it and respond to it. So that you're not the one who's labeled hypocrite. But you're the one who's labeled true worshiper in spirit and in truth. We need to give them all we've got all the time.